The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, we are thankful that you are God. You are the God who reigns, and that as we are drawn to see that and drawn into worship of you, that it is actually not a separate thing to talk about and also encouraging the body, but to see you reigning and to be drawn into the worship of you is, in fact, encouraging and upbuilding for us. So I pray that you would open our eyes to see you and to see you at work in the various ways that you draw near, in the various ways that you minister, sometimes to minister in the midst of hard situations and sometimes in the midst of of pure, delightful situations. Your work is varied. Give us eyes to see it. And I pray, Lord, that as we see you and see you at work, that you would build in us a a delighted rest, as was prayed about already this morning, a, a delighted rest, a rejoicing, even if we, in this moment in this world, walk through valleys of sorrow, a, a, a perhaps bizarre, in the, in the eyes of the world, perhaps bizarre rejoicing, even while sorrowing. And would you, Lord, then from that place of rejoicing rest, would you move us to be a people who give our lives away? Who give away our lives for you and for others. The passage before us this morning calls us, commands us towards love, Love of others even in hard situations. And so, so Father, what I want to ask you to do here in this, in this time here and going forward from here is to take this passage and the ones that follow, the ideas that are brought up in them, would you take this, your word, and press it into us and make us different? Make us a people who love Father, take us beyond the the point of being a a nice, orderly, theologically sharp church. Take us beyond preaching and teaching and and learning just for learnings and preachings and teachings' sake. Take us beyond that to Christ-likeness. That would be an awesome work if you would do that, and that's what I ask you to do. Take us to Christ-likeness, that we would love like he has loved us. Spirit of God, would you please do whatever work is necessary in each individual heart here to accomplish that this morning. Clear away distraction, clear away sin, if there is sin that, that stands as a barrier between us and hearing from you. Clear away physical distractions. Allow us to to silently sit before you to hear and to be changed. Spirit, we look to you to do that work in us. 
conform us to Christ. We pray this for our good, for the good of the church, for the glory of Jesus, and, and for the good of the world, in fact. So teach us this morning. Open your word to us. Build us up and honor your name. That's what we pray. And it is in Christ's name, in line with Christ, that we pray it. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 6, where we continue on with that extended discussion of Jesus known as the Sermon on the Mount. He's teaching us here this, this long discussion of, of topics that we, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And we have, over the last several weeks, seen an opportunity to consider four Beatitudes, four statements of happy to you, fortunate to you because of some good thing that's happened. That's, that's what a Beatitude is, a statement of blessing because of good fortune. Very common form of speech in that day. Jesus used it. We've seen four of them here. The first three are talking about the character of a Christian. And the fourth one, a little bit different, talks about the response of the world to Christians. So they're each a little bit different from each other, from one another, and all of them together are somewhat unusual. If you consider the, the general pattern of a beatitude, they're unusual because in each case, they're about something hard. Jesus brings up in each one of these some expected difficulty, some realized hardship now in life. And in particular, we saw this last week in verses 22 and 23. He says, the world will hate you, exclude you, revile and spurn you because of Christ. Blessed are you. That's odd. And then he moves on to explain some of why calls us to rejoice and to actually be exuberant, to, to leap for joy because, nevertheless, though the world is against us, we should rejoice because we will be rewarded in the future. Knowing now that the opposition is real, as we follow Christ, what we say and who we are and what we do is going to be rejected by the world, but we are to, to stand in that, to walk through that, looking ahead at reward, not expecting this to go away and knowing, in fact, that this is going to be particularly true as we make clear the exclusivity of Christ and the fact that judgment sits over all of the world. That's what the woes are about in 24, 5, and 6, where we concluded last week. As we Christians, as, as the church makes clear, as we interact with people, that there's a judgment that rests upon the world as it rejects the supremacy of Christ as it refuses to turn to Christ and trust him alone. The world is not going to like that. But Jesus makes clear, and we are to understand that woe to the world, because while it may be going just great now, there is a time coming that is not going to be just great. All who have not turned to Christ for forgiveness of sin to turn to Christ alone for forgiveness of sin will face great eternal sorrow. That was last week. That's the end. That's the setup, really. And we're going to see eventually this morning how that prepares us for the body of the sermon, which we turn to now in verse 27. The introduction, the, the blessings and the curses, the beatitudes and the woes, prepares us now as we move into 
the center of the sermon, a couple of paragraphs with many different exhortations related to love. Now this, this section is too long to deal with all at once, but it is very closely related to itself. It's intertwined, and so there are a number of different ways I could divide this, but I'm going to deal with just 27 to, 20, to 30 this morning. I'm going to read both paragraphs. We can get the whole scope of it, but we'll deal with just the first piece of it. We'll come back to love and say more about it in the following weeks. Let me read the whole section, and I'll draw two observations. One, what Jesus calls us to, and the second one of how he thinks we can do it, how he plans to enable us to do it. So we're going to work on a, a what and a how here, but first let me read all of 27 through 35. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the grateful and to the evil. The word of the Lord in Luke 6. As I said, I'm going to make two observations. What and how. Here's the what. Extreme, active, selfless love is to characterize a Christian. Extreme, active, selfless love is to characterize a Christian. Verse 27 begins with but, a contrast, because Jesus is turning his attention back from those who disagree with him onto those who are followers of his. He just said, woe to you, but I say to you who hear and follow me and who know what it is to live in the world and to be opposed by the world, I say to you, here's how you are to live with them. Here's how you are to interact with such ones who oppose you. You love them. Love your enemies. And notice then how he basically restates what he set up in verses 22 and 23. You've got the same context in mind here. Your enemies, that is, those who hate you, like I said before, those who curse you and abuse you, those who, who misuse you in various ways. It's the same context in mind, which is noteworthy. These categories of opponents, they're very broad. So what, what we see here, we can apply to many different areas in life. People who, who are your enemies, people who hate you. That could be just about anything. It's very wide application. 
So as we're thinking about this, we need, we need to think about it in lots of different relationships and lots of different contexts. But we have to note, first and foremost, Jesus has in view the most difficult of opponents, religious ones. That's his, his first, his initial context, hostile non-believers who oppose us because of Christ on account of the Son of Man. He's carried, with the same words, he's carrying the same idea forward. He has in mind people who don't disagree at some surface level or, or aren't against each other in some particular circumstance, but at the bottom, at the foundation, at their core, have a religious disagreement so that there isn't going to be any possibility of compromise here. There isn't a possibility of talking somebody into something. We don't share any common ground. We are opponents for the sake of Christ. That's the hardest possible opposition. Them ones love them. And every other opponent, too. But he does not even exclude these most difficult ones. Do good to those who are enemies of yours on account of Christ and everyone else too. Bless them, pray for them, do them good. These are four different commands that really are just different perspectives on the same basic issue, love. And they are commands. It's all a command. And the grammar indicates it's a continual issue. How many times should I do this? Once, twice, seven times? No. Habitually. 70 times, seven times. This characterizes us. Always a command. Love the hardest enemies. Which sounds hard and is hard, but could be just a bit vague and squishy. You know, love is kind of a big word. Bless is kind of a big word. And so there might just be enough room for us to wiggle out of this. We are prone to rationalize and say, well, I love people. I love people. I pray for non-Christians. And I'm really not into cursing people. If I don't have anything good to say about people, I just don't say anything. I avoid them. I stay away. I, I follow this. And we would miss how extreme he means to be. There's just enough room to kind of dodge the tip of the spear so it doesn't pierce us, and we miss the radicalness of this. So as to block all the exits, Jesus gives us some examples. But before we move to the examples, we need to think about how to think about the examples. His point in the passage is 27 and 28. That's the point, not 29 and 30 to the exclusion of 27 and 28. What I mean is, the goal is not get rid of your possessions. He says, if somebody takes your, your, your cloak, don't withhold your tunic either. The goal is not to get rid of cloak and tunic. Nor is the goal, get hit on both cheeks. If somebody strikes you on one cheek, off the other also, as we'll see. That's not the goal. The goal is 27, 28, love. 
That's what he's after. Do good to, bless, pray. He doesn't tell us why yet, but if we think about it for just a second, it's not hard to understand all of why. He comes to more why in the following paragraph. But we could, we could stop here just long enough and think about why does he say this? It's not that hard to, to understand. At least one reason why we would love and bless and pray for enemies is that the gospel might spread to them, that they might be saved as they see in us what Christ is like towards them today, now. As they see in us, Jesus is like this towards you. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm one who is like him. This is what he's like. You are enemies. You are opponents of him on account of him. And he deals with you lovingly and does good to you and seeks to bless you though you curse him. We want to show people that, not just say it with our mouths, we want to show it with our lives because we want them to see it and to be saved. That's the goal. The goal is love and bless and pray for that they might be converted, not just that we get rid of our stuff, that we get struck. It's important to to get that in mind because when we come to the specific examples, they are incredibly sticky. There's a bunch of complexity in every single one of these examples. If you dive into them, discussion can go like this. Well, what about, well, what about, well, what about, well, what about, well, what about? Yeah, yeah, granted. I'm going to say some things about them, and we can kind of understand the basic trajectory of them, but there are many cases in which we, we see there's this call here in all these examples to a radical Denial of self. But questions arise that say, well, how much should I deny myself and how much should I pursue a legal recourse? And if we look at the New Testament, don't we even see the Apostle Paul dealing with both? Sometimes he says, you know, I'm a citizen of Rome and this is illegal. And sometimes he doesn't. He just suffers. Well, how does he decide between the two? That's tricky. That's difficult. But if we keep in mind, the goal is not that I get beaten. The goal is that I love, that I bless, that I pray for in order to influence this person towards Christ. Then we're at least helped a little bit as we look at those specific examples. What I need to keep in mind is, is this love for other? What is love for other? What is blessing for other in this situation? Keep that in mind. It helps us to understand and helps us to answer the wisdom question in every one of these examples. It doesn't answer every question, but it helps us. So we need to think about, we need to come to these examples keeping in mind the goal is love. The goal is bless. The goal is do good to. The goal is pray for and seek to help a person find the loving and good doing and blessing Jesus. That's our mindset, how we're thinking about these examples. First he says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, offer them the other also. Love your enemies, even the hard ones, even when they slap you on the cheek. 
And the grammar is slap. It might be a backhanded slap, but it's not a punch. We're not talking about fighting here. And this is not about some removal of the right to physical self-defense. not about don't call the police if you're physically assaulted. No one, I need to be clear about this, no one should hear. I'm being physically assaulted and Jesus doesn't allow me to call the police. And be crystal clear to some of us, but there have been, there have been women and children in particular in churches who hear this verse and say, I better just take it, I guess. And that's not true. It's not true. Being a slap, the intent is not physical harm. This is not assault. This is insult. This is a, how dare you say that? That's an expression made by someone who thinks he is a superior and is trying to put someone back into his place. We reject you, reject your right to speak. It's an act of disdain. And commonly, the slap person lowers his eyes and slinks away, shamed. This is about disdain, insult, humiliation. And in such a situation, when insulted like that, offer the other cheek too. Pride would lead us either to slink away and to protect by hiding or to fight back. Maybe take a swing back or indignantly respond. You know the right to do that. But Jesus says, patient and non-retaliatory, non-vengeful, non-indignant vulnerability, continued vulnerability, leaves you standing there. We don't know, but perhaps to get slapped again, perhaps to get cut down and insulted and humiliated again. Not, remember, because getting humiliated is what we're after, but because love and do good and bless. And perhaps what I need to do to love and to do good and to bless this one is stand here and keep moving towards. towards. And what I want to do is retaliate, and that would squash the relationship, or run away, and that would end the relationship. Maybe what I need to do is just take the humiliation. Vulnerable. Loving enemy, not self. How often are you harmed or shamed or treated with disrespect or disdained or slandered, verbally insulted? You know what so-and-so says about you on Facebook? Anybody ever told you that? You ever seen that? People say the craziest stuff on the internet as if nobody knows, as if it's anonymous. People say the craziest things about you on Facebook. You've ever heard that? Or has somebody cut your clothing and insulted you because of your acne? What do you want to do back? 
You want to put them in their place or slink away. You hear the person, you overhear the person in the break room at work describing you. In any place in life, we, we bump into clearly the assault on our dignity, the assault on our character, the humiliation, and to not fight back and not demand our dignity be respected is difficult. And to just let my dignity go for the sake of, in some way or another, for the sake of moving towards so as to love and continue to do good to this one who humiliates me and who insults me. That's what Jesus is calling you to. Turn the other cheek also. And the same thing goes for your possessions. When someone takes from you your cloak, don't withhold the tunic either. Same basic idea, but now with possessions. There might be, there, there could be some situations in which someone could require your cloak from you, but the tunic is the inner garment worn right against the skin. And what Jesus is saying is, even that one, open-handed, surrendered, well, what am I going to have left? Open-handed. This is extreme. I mean, if you, if you follow that literally, you're naked. Possessions, everything, open-handed. Not because, again, not because we're trying to get rid of everything, not because things are bad, but for the sake of love. Perhaps, as I bump into someone who demands from me, who takes from me, uh, what I, my response is supposed to be is, here, my things are open to you. Now, once again, this does not say that if you're being robbed, you can't call the police. But again, it's, it's telling us that there are situations in which we want to say, mine with my stuff, and Jesus is saying, actually the other way. With all of your stuff, even the most precious of your things, open-handed and generous, and it might just be that sacrificial giving up of your things is what is needed to love this one, is what is needed to bless this one materially with what you have, with all of what you have. Give to everyone who begs from you. The third one. Or if you have, if you're reading the NIV or the NAS, you might see that the word for beg here is just the generic word for ask. We sometimes, we hear beg and we hear panhandler on the street. He means something slightly different than that. Next paragraph, Jesus is going to reiter reiterate many of the same issues, and he's going to talk about lending. It's probably what he has on mind here. Somebody who asks you for a loan. And in that context, loaning was not about buying houses and financing college educations. Loaning was about meeting basic needs of life. So if somebody asks you for a loan, they're asking you because they need basic needs met in their lives. And Jesus is saying, when they ask, give. And the emphasis falls on, if you read it, give to everyone. He does not mean every single person. He means indiscriminately. Remember his context here, those who hate you. We would be inclined to give the people that we like. He's saying give to everyone, even the people that hate you. 
which is surprising. We have someone who, here we have posited, someone who is an enemy of ours and finds themselves in such desperate situation that they come to us and ask for help. Give to them. How powerful would that be? When the person realizes, I've treated you poorly and I'm so desperate that I have to look to you and you don't in that moment say, now is my chance. Screw you. I know it's a swear word. Swear word. But isn't that what we want to say? Now, there. <laughs> no, instead in that moment you say, my things are yours. My things are yours. This is the Muslim refugee from ISIS and in Syria and in Iraq, as well as the Christian refugee. Both of them. You can read that Voice of the Martyrs magazine, again, that I've handed out and referred to several times. There are Muslims fleeing from ISIS, receiving gracious help from Christians, and wondering, what is going on in my religion? They're asking the right questions because of this very thing, because some Christians in the Middle East are thinking, even to my enemies, I give when they need. In our lives, we, we don't face such dramatic, drastic things like that, but there certainly are people that you don't like, that have opposed you, that have hurt you in some way or another, who find themselves in need. And what Jesus is saying to them too, to everyone, give when they are in need. There, there are probably some people from certain political perspectives and certain moral and ethical positions that we regard as, uh, whatever word you want to put on, uh, them especially, when they ask, my things are yours. In love, to bless, to draw them to a gracious Christ. And if someone takes away your goods, don't demand them back. Which again, isn't saying that we can't ask for something back and not saying that we can't report a crime or press charges He's talking again about attitude. What's your attitude? What do you do when your things are taken away from you and are confiscated by people? When your neighbor, as happens sometimes, when your neighbor takes something or borrows something and breaks it and can't replace it. Is your attitude of a pound of flesh, that's mine, repay, return. Or is it, okay. Jesus previously had been talking about generosity, about voluntarily giving away. Here's something that's been taken away. Maybe you weren't planning on it being taken away, but it's taken away, and your attitude is the same in, in both. Open-handed, really your attitude is the same throughout all these things. It's open-handed, it's vulnerable, it's exposed. This is all one gigantic call to the denial of self. And he presses that, for each of us, he presses that into our dignity, our, 
our perception of ourself, our own honor, the things that we own, the things that we build our lives on, even the, the very personal inner clothing, absolutely everything that we have and who we are as people is laid open-handed and vulnerable before people who hate us. That's crazy. That is crazy. The great danger here, men and women, the great danger here is that I walk through all this, and it's, it's very familiar to us, and as I, I've got to touch on every one of these phrases, and so there's a certain bit of speed that I move through, and our eyes glaze over. I mean, I'm looking on, I can see this. Eyes glazing over. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I've heard that. I love your enemy. Yeah, okay, yeah, love your neighbors yourself. Uh-huh. And you kind of agree with it, and then there goes the tip of the spear. You dodge it, and you run for the exit. He's trying to close all this off to say, die. In every way you can think of, it's included here. You don't own anything and you aren't anything that he didn't just touch on some way or another in his examples. Not so that we would end up dead, but die that others may live, that Christ may be honored, that they would be loved and blessed and drawn to him. This is crazy impossible. And it is all one gigantic call to lay yourself down for the sake of others who aren't remotely attractive to you. Do you get that? This is way up here. Way up there. To to live this, to experience this, looks like death. Feels like death pain, leaves you jittery and worried because you're exposed and you have no recourse. It is all a grand call as a witness to him and as a witness for them, lay down your own life and everything that you call dear, and it is a command, and it is a continual command, and it is front and, and back and up and down and covering every area of life, and it is overwhelming. But it's clear. It's so clear. So the first thing we have to ask as we approach it is, do you have anything you need to repent of? And the answer is, of course. Because none of us live like this. If I have in any way communicated this passage, there isn't anybody sitting here saying, yeah, that's me. That's me. Man, I love it when Jesus commends me. I'm getting ahead of myself here. I would not be surprised if there are some here sitting, sitting here saying, man, I love when Jesus talks to my spouse about how he's supposed to treat me. That's common. Man, I love when Jesus talks to other people. I love when Jesus corrects the church. It's not about them ones out there. It's about you. He's talking to you about how you are to be, not how other people are to treat you, 
not how we're supposed to be, about you. And so do you have anything to repent of? Of course you do. Do you love your enemies? In a moment of honesty, would they say, he, she is really good to me, which is really surprising given how I am to him or her. Would they say that? If, if they were struck with a moment of honesty, would they say, he, she gives to me in remarkable ways. Would, would your opponents say that about you? Not your friends. Do you pray for them? Would you love to see them meet Christ and be forgiven? Or do you mostly want to see them be made to be exposed and shown to be wrong? What's your heart for them, for your enemies? For your spouse that's in the wrong, for the person in the hallway that critiques your clothing all the time and makes fun of you, for the workmate that just constantly undermines you. What's your heart for that person? Justice or mercy and love and grace? Maybe we have to repent. And if, if you do that, what you'll see maybe in a fresh way is that this, this call is way, way up here. And you're dealing with, you're hearing from, and then you're repenting to a, a Jesus who himself loved you while, he was, while you were his enemy and blessed you when you cursed him and drew near to you to do you good. He loved you and he loves you with an everlasting, extreme, self-denying and forgiving love. That's what characterized him as he dealt with you and what he calls us to be characterized by as well. That's what he says. And then the second part of it is how. Because the command is still way up there. How? So here's the second point. Extreme selfless love is empowered by great security and promise. It is empowered by great security and promise. Jesus commands us, how do we do it? We should note that what I was just talking about is part of how we do it. We, we turn and we look at the gospel and we find in it, in his forgiveness of us, in his, in his drawing near in this way to us, he has forgiven us, he has changed us, we are new creations with the Spirit of God living in us. So part of how we are conformed to Christ is just been already talked about. God sends his Spirit in us and changes us. We can be more specific. What do you mean by God changes us or the Spirit empowers us? What does that mean? Well, maybe more specific on that point. The Spirit does two particular things. He gives us eyes to see, that is to understand, remember, 
and faith to believe. That is, not just intellectually know and understand, but actually believe in a way that controls us. So he gives us, the Spirit grows us, changes us, empowers us. What I mean by that is he gives us eyes to see and faith to believe what? Well, specifically, in this context, the truth of the woes and the beatitudes. That's why Jesus starts there. This builds, it flows. He gives us eyes to see and faith to believe the message of the Beatitudes and the message of the woes. This is very important. Start with the woes first. Christian, you, you, can, you can love your enemy and do good to the person who is hating you and who is actively doing you wrong and who is cursing you. You can stand vulnerable before and lay down your life before and give to and serve such a one because, this is seeing and believing, because the hunger and mourning and weeping of certain eternal justice awaits that enemy. This is very important to see this connection here. It's critical for us as we turn the other cheek and bear up under shame and humiliation and injustice to know, is to see it, and to believe it, that justice is coming. We weep for the lack of righteousness now and realize it's not coming in this life, but we see a day coming in which it will be. Justice and righteousness will be. B, this is very important because we chafe under, and really we kind of fear sometimes, that evil is growing and is getting away with it. And we fear that if, if I'm merciful and if I'm loving and, and I am doing good, that I'm actually just feeding it. I'm aiding and abetting and it's getting away and it's growing and it's just, there they are, happy and thriving. And it might even seem like, like I approve of it. This is particularly important when something grievous has been done to, to, a per, to you personally. And we can talk about evil out there. But when somebody does something to you personally that is bad, 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 wrong, 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 for you to say, okay, I'll stand here and I'll give. I will smile. I will not retaliate. I will turn the other cheek and I will prepare dinner for you just like normal. Feels like you're saying, that's no big deal. That's okay. It feels like I shouldn't do that. I should say, wrong, not Here's dinner, honey. It feels wrong. They're getting away with it, and I'm helping. But it's right at that point that we need to remember the woes. Here's one rich and full now and laughing now and fully in line with all the world and everybody's agreeing with him, her, and they're all together saying, what a great guy. And the other shoe has not yet fallen. 
It's going to fall. Woe to such a one. They're not getting away with it. I'm not the judge. I don't pass verdict, and I don't sentence, and I don't carry out. But there is one who sees. There is one who knows. And he comes to judge the living and the dead. And all that is to be righted will be righted. And every offense that I bear up under now will either one day be hung on the cross of Christ, at which point I will rejoice saying, this my entity has been made my brother by grace, bless God, or will be hung round the neck of this my enemy as God sentences him or her to hell eternal. Woe to such a one. My job right now is not to be judge, jury, and executioner, nor is it ever. My job right now, your job right now in the midst of this is to love your enemy and to lay down your life and act like Christ is to that person right now. He right now is not judge, jury, executioner. Either is he. Is he not now with open hand pleading with that your enemy? I came the first time in love and in mercy and in grace to say to those who curse me, here is hope. Is, it, is that not now his message to them as long as it is called today? Indeed it is. And that's our message to them as well. We are not approving of wickedness when we love. We still speak the truth, which is why they don't like us for the sake of Christ. We still speak the truth, but we do so in love, giving away our lives. It is not condoning, it is not exonerating, and it is not giving it a pass, and, and nobody's getting away with anything. Nobody gets away with anything. That reality must be front and center in our minds that the woes really are true. I am called, I am commanded clearly to love my enemy and to warn him or her about the woes in love and leave it to God to carry out the sentence. I am called to love. So part of the first, the first piece of how is it that we, that we can even move towards this incredibly high calling, part of it is we keep by the Spirit of God, we keep mindful of and we believe. By the Spirit's work in us, mindful of and we believe just like Jesus did. Is this not the model that Peter says he laid down for us? When reviled, he did not revile in return, but he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. First Peter chapter 3. Chapter 3, 2. First Peter at least. A critical passage. Man, I should remember the address of that. <laughs> a critical passage because Peter explicitly tells us that Jesus is giving us a model. How did Jesus do that? How did Jesus, when reviled, not revile in return, when cursed, not curse, but lay down his life, entrusting himself to him who judges justly, Jesus believed the woes and knew there was a coming, final writing of everything. May the Spirit of God press into you, the woes are true. 
and so are the Beatitudes. Especially as summarized in the last one, verses 22 and 23. Rejoice and leap for joy, you who are persecuted. And we could add in, and freely love your persecutors. For see, behold, he says, your reward is great in heaven. We talked about this last week. Not just natural consequence, what comes next. Reward. I mean, not just natural sequence, what comes next. This is consequence. Reward as a consequence of the persecution. An evaluator who sees and who knows and not only judges, but also rewards. May God the Spirit give you eyes to see and faith to believe this, that while you may be poor and afflicted and hungry and weeping and hated and excluded and reviled and spurned today, because of that, there is certainly from God reward coming to you one day. It is all of it, all of this trouble, light and momentary by comparison, is heaping up for you, is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory that far outshines everything you're going to face here. And that reward is tied to, it is reward, it is tied to faithfulness under, faithfulness in the midst of persecution, which looks like fidelity to Christ and love of other. That brings you reward. And if you see that and believe it, you'll say, let me chase my reward by loving my enemy. What this looks like is lunacy. A couple people sitting in prison at night with oozing wounds, singing for joy, not knowing what tomorrow brings. And then sharing the gospel graciously and kindly with their jailer. And that's possible if the Spirit of God gives us eyes to see the coming reward and the coming judgment and faith to believe the reality of the coming reward and its magnitude and its glory and the finality of the coming judgment. You shall be satisfied, Christian. You shall laugh one day. The kingdom of God is yours, and it is coming in fullness. And while it is coming here, we are called, commanded, called to a self-denying and sacrificial and extreme love for enemies that we may win them to Christ and that we may testify to them of Christ and that you may heap up a reward from Christ. Blessed are you, Christian, when you love your enemies and do good to them and bless them and pray for them. 
Let me pray. Lord, this is a passage that holds out some amazing and complicated and difficult things. And as soon as we dive into any specifics in life, Lord, it is, it is easy to find confusion. What about this situation and that and this detail and this moment? And Lord, I think probably some of us are running there right now and I pray that you would meet your people. That you would meet them in those details and give them guidance. Spirit of God, would you direct your people maybe even into situations that they did not come in here this morning thinking about. Would you direct your people into love? Would you encourage your people with the reality of justice and the reality of reward? Would you move your people and grow us up and mature us? And would you remind us, Lord, that you reign, that nothing Nothing happens to us that has not passed through your hand first. Give us eyes to see and faith to believe, Spirit of God. Build your church and honor Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.